Now I gotta come up here and just talk right after that. Good morning, church. What a joy to be together. Happy Advent. You guys, especially those of you guys who came to the meeting last night, going to church twice in two days, you bunch of nerds. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm glad you're here, especially if you came last night. What a joyful time to come together and share a meal and celebrate what God is doing. I said this last night, I'll say it again, it is just, I just love our church. It's just such a privilege to get to be your pastor and get to do this thing together. Seriously. You guys are great, and our God is good to us. We are continuing our series in Advent today. If you guys want to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. So we've been going through, uh, there's a genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, and we've been going through our Advent series looking at the women highlighted in Jesus' genealogy. It's kind of a way biblically to, to look at the themes of Advent, right? So the first week in the week of hope, we considered Tamar, this young woman who seemingly had her hopes Taken from her last week in the week of faith, we considered Rahab, who, who starts her story as Rahab the harlot, and, and through her faith in Yahweh ends her story as Rahab the daughter of Abraham. It's such a beautiful text. And today we have lit, uh, we have clicked on the joy candle, and in our discussion of joy, we're going to be looking at joy through the lens of Ruth. And I am stoked for this. It's, it's, it's going to be a good little series. We're actually going to do, just do kind of an overview of the whole book of Ruth today. It's a short one, only four chapters, but I think this will be a good experience for us. We said this during the Advent reading, but, but joy is a funny thing. It's a funny thing because, A, it, it's one of these things that's so baked into Western culture, American understanding of Christmas, that it's just kind of, it can kind of become this white noise word for us, right? Like, you can walk into a Starbucks or a Target, and they can put the word joy on a banner in the window, and you'd be like, yeah, Christmas, that makes sense to me. And we just kind of move past it, right? It's one of those things that, that we can miss it in just the larger kind of what's going on in the season. And I think beyond that, and this is part of the problem, is because of that, because it can become this white noise word, kind of lose its meaning, it almost highlights the fact that when it gets down to it, joy is this beautiful thing that we all long for, and yet it can't be faked. Can't fake that one. And if you've ever worked in retail or food service, you know that's true. I spent a long time working in food service. My first you know, grown-up job with a paycheck was uh, as a fry cook, man. Slinging burgers and fries kept me... Uh, with a full tank of gas and enough punk rock records to make me go deaf at age 18. Uh, through, through high school and college, um, that was how I got my cash, slinging burgers and fries. And if you've ever worked in a commercial kitchen, you already know where I'm going with this. But commercial kitchens are the places where joy goes to die. In fact, last night at dinner, Kim and I were talking to the Montaigne's about this. This shared, shared trauma that we have uh, of, of working in a commercial kitchen. Because the reality is, whether it's like sit-down food service or fast food, like it's just an intensely stressful place to be, especially considering what you're doing. In my tenure in food service, I had people yell at me, people threaten me physically, people call the police. I had experiences where people threw food at me in anger, a burger open face splat across me and slide down like out of a cartoon. It's a real thing. And yet... 
When that customer walks up, you got to put on a smile, right? Welcome to McDonald's. How can I serve you today? And it like that still comes out, and I'm like twitching right now. <laughs> you, you have no choice. When that customer walks up, it doesn't matter what happened 25 seconds ago. You got to have that smile on. And you've got to be welcoming and kind. And by the way, if you don't, a good chunk of your customers will go out of their way to tell your manager that you weren't nice enough to them while they told you that you took their order. It's a real thing, right? If you've worked in that environment, you know what fake it till you make it means when it comes to joy. And unfortunately, as much as we can kind of laugh at that or maybe laugh and cry about that if you actually work in retail or service, a lot of us do the exact same thing when we show up on Sunday. We get out of our car in the parking lot having just concluded a heated discussion with our spouse or a fight with our kids or contemplating our doubts or our hurts or something we're mourning or something lost or a bad diagnosis or whatever it is that is weighing on our hearts. And as we walk across here, there's a smiling greeter saying, welcome to church. I'm so glad you're here. How are you doing? And our first go-to is not to go, well, let me actually tell you about my car ride here and my time dealing with my doubts or my anger or contemplating leaving my marriage or wishing desperately. We just we don't do that, right? For many of us, it's a space where we immediately just go, I'm good, I'm blessed, upright and mobile. God's good to me. And we smile and we come in and we grab a coffee. Now listen, I know I just went zero to 60 in terms of like getting real there, right? Like start out making fun of McDonald's and now I'm like, we lie to each other a lot. But, but, but there, is, <laughs> there is truth in that that we need to talk about, right? You can't fake joy. You just can't. It's not real. You can put that mask on, but that's not, that's not a real thing. And by the way, we sense that in each other, right? But here's what I'm excited for us to talk about today. Because of the gospel, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's accomplished on your behalf, beloved, the joy of Christ is available to you here today. It genuinely is. Because of what God has done on your behalf, the joy of Christ is available to you today, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what things weigh on you. You see, with biblical hope, this, this longing for God to make things right, for God to make things better, gets married to biblical faith, this trust that God is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says he'll do. I'm telling you guys, biblical joy is born. Biblical joy is this, this exuberant foundedness, this, this rock-solid, unshakable experience that your personhood is secure in this reality. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for you, you have a security that is bigger than whatever the heck you're facing today. And accessing that, responding to that, that is available to you in Christ. So, Ruth, I'm going to take us through this and we're going to, we're going to go through this kind of chunk by chunk. Ruth, Ruth is a relatively short story. It's told in four chapters. Each chapter kind of gives us a single scene of Ruth. So I'll, I'll, I won't read a big, long text for us, but I'll grab some highlights out of each one. So have your Bible open, kind of look over this as we go. But, but here's what I'd like for us to do today. We're going to go through this story and kind of grab the 30,000-foot view of it. And I think it's really just going to paint for us 
this really clear picture of, of how hope and faith come together to create joy. How the work of God on our behalf to redeem us creates an environment where joy is legitimately accessible. I think once we get there, uh, it's just going to be kind of plain and beautiful. I'm like, man, that was good. I'm glad we talked about that. And we'll end our time reflecting on the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Philippians and how that kind of speaks a little nuance and more understanding of joy also. And we'll just end by praying and taking communion. Sound good? Pray with me. We'll jump into this. Jesus, we need you today. Lord, we walk into this space today bringing with us a, a plurality of varying circumstances. Some fun and some not fun. Some pleasant and some deeply painful. Lord, I ask today that you would, you would meet us in this space. Meet us in whatever circumstance it is that brought us here today. Let us hear from the Holy Spirit as your word says. Do, do your ministry to us, Spirit. Remind us, teach us, encourage us, convict us. And let us leave here today having heard from you in a way that our hearts need. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Judge 1, or Judge, Ruth 1.1 opens with this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Ruth opens by letting us know exactly where we are in the story. So we're picking up a good hundred-ish years later after the story of Rahab. You can plus or minus a good chunk there. But I give that to you to let you know, like, we're, 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 we're a couple generations down the line away from where we were with Rahab last week. So, so remember the historical context, right? God moved and acted in human history through the prophet Moses to free his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And he led them for a full generation through the wilderness until the prophet Moses died and the general Joshua took over the leadership of Israel. In the midst of that, at, at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with his people, introduced them to worship with him through the tabernacle, through the priest system, through the laws but when it gets down to it, and this is where we were last week, after the generation has passed, God brings his people into the promised land. The general Joshua leads Israel by faith across the Jordan into Canaan. And starting with the conquest of Jericho, God's people take sacred possession of the land God has given them. God's people act out, and this is the intense part, right? The judgment and wrath of God upon the people of Canaan. God has said, you're being punished for your blasphemy and your sin and your evil, and I'm taking this land from you and giving it to Israel. Here's the problem. You read Joshua, they go in, you can look at the map, they cross over the Jordan, they conquer Jericho, and they make an expedition a little bit to the west, and they kind of go back, and they make an expedition up to the north, and they go back, and they make an expedition down to the south, and they come back, and they kind of cut out this bubble of the promised land that God had assigned to them, but then Joshua dies, and things wind down, and they just kind of leave the job half done. And Israel settles into this chunk of land that they've conquered, not actually having accomplished what God told them to accomplish. Rather than working out his divine judgment upon all the people of Canaan, instead, they killed a bunch of them and beat up a bunch of them and kind of pushed them back and took a chunk of land and said, this will do, and just kind of settled into that which is a terrible thing for Israel. 
This transitions us into the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is one of the most bleak books in Scripture. What you essentially see over the book of Judges is this slow, sorrowful, generational drifting away from the covenant. God's people become increasingly scattered and tribal. Where they don't see themselves as much as the nation of Israel, so much as they see themselves as whatever tribe they are. And they live at almost continual war with these surrounding peoples that they did not remove from the land. And eventually even war with each other between tribes. And and you see this cycle of sin and punishment and, 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 and redemption happening in Judges where... God's people violate his covenant, they break his covenant, and they turn to the pagan ways of Canaan, the the very things that brought God's judgment upon Canaan, and God removes the blessing of his covenant from them and gives them the curses of broken covenant as spelled out, Deuteronomy 27, 20, 29, that that section of Scripture, 27, 28, spelled out there, and then when things get awful, whatever tribe this is in this part of the story repents and returns to God, and God raises up a redeemer, one of the judges, who lead them, and they operate in some form of repentance, and they receive the blessing of the covenant again, and live that way for a little while until that judge dies, and then when that judge dies, they turn back to the sinful ways of Canaan, but this time, it's a little worse than it was the last time, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and this book really does devolve into this sorrowful just. What even is Israel at this point? By the end of Judges, even the judges, even the redeemers, the ones God's spirit raising up, are basically as bad as the Canaanites. You really do have this moment where you're reading and you go, wait, is Samson the good guy or the bad guy? I can't quite tell as I'm reading this. And when he gets caught finally, there is a part of you that just kind of goes, yeah, he definitely had it coming. Like, that guy's pretty awful. That's how the story goes. It's pretty terrible. It's pretty bleak. It's this generational, cyclical decline of holiness. And Ruth tells us, this is when this story happens. Smack dab in the middle of the era of the judges. The time when Israel is defined more by their rejection of Yahweh and covenant than by their following after it. And in the midst of this, a man named Elimelech of the tribe of Judah living in Bethlehem experiences some suffering. There's famine in the land. And their response is they leave and go to Moab. Now on the surface, when you initially read that, if you're like me, you go, I mean, it makes sense. Gotta eat. You got a family. He's got people to take care of. So they leave and they go where the food is. But here's the problem. That misses the larger theological context of what's going on in Israel at this point in time. You have to remember, Israel is living under their covenant with God. And God spelled out very specifically what the blessings that that, that come from following the covenant are and what the curses that come from breaking the covenant are. And this famine is part of the list of curses God described when his people break covenant. Which is exactly what the book of Judges is about. The cycle of breaking covenant, repenting and returning, breaking and repenting and returning. And so Elimelech is faced here, yes, with a very real physical need, but, but in the larger context, he's faced here with the consequences of God's people rejecting him and breaking covenant. The solution for Elimelech and his family is repentance. But his solution is to leave Israel and go to Moab. And if you don't know Moab just kind of off the top of your head, 
This is one of the neighboring nations to Israel. If you're looking at the map, they sit on the east side of the Jordan River and kind of the top east section of the Dead Sea. This is one of the peoples that Israel passed through on their way to the Promised Land. And they're basically known for being not too kind to Israel. This is the people that hired the prophet Balaam to bring down curses on Israel while they were in the wilderness. God is not a super big fan of this people. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, he lets be known in no uncertain terms that Moab has no place in his covenant. He says, you are to have nothing to do with Moab. Do not even speak to them, much less have relationship, much less make agreements with them. You are to avoid Moab at all costs. They have no place in my covenant for ten generations, which is a Hebrew shorthand for forever. Moab is no good. No bueno. Get away from him. And so here you have Elimelech and his family facing the reality of broken covenant, the judgment of God that comes from breaking covenant. And his response, rather than repentance, is to literally, physically walk away from the promised land. To leave the land of blessing, the land of covenant, the land that God assigned to his family, and walk into the land of the enemy and say, here I'll find food. In a very, in a very real sense, whether he's conscious of it or not, Elimelech is leading his family to reject the covenant of God. And he gets the consequences that you kind of expect to go with that kind of decision. As Ruth chapter 1 goes on, they assimilate the culture of Moab. He marries off his sons to Moabite women, and then he and his sons die. And his wife Naomi is left as a widow with two young daughter-in-law widows. And if you haven't caught this, in the last couple weeks of us being in the Old Testament, there's not a lot of social safety net in place for women and widows in this part of the world at this time in human history. It's not a great time to be a widow, except in Israel. You see, this is the interesting piece. Because God had so connected his covenant blessing specifically to the land, to the inheritance, Chunks of land, chunks of the promised land were eternally signed over to different clans and tribes and families. So much so that it literally says, if you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if they were to sell their land, they're not actually selling the land. They're selling a certain number of crops that can be harvested before the land is returned to the family because God said which chunk of land in Israel belonged to which family. And nobody's purchase or order of purchase needs to change that. This whole idea of the land is so built into the covenant that there's no way, it's, it, it would be a breaking of God's covenant for a family to lose the land, to the inheritance, to go away. And so God codified in the law social structures, laws, safety nets to actually care for widows and orphans to make sure the inheritance is continued. To make sure people don't starve to death. Now, remember, this is a point in Israel's history where they are probably less likely to be following those laws than they are to be following them, right? But, this is built in to the history of who Israel is. So as Naomi is left sitting here as a widow with nothing, with two young Moabite widow daughter-in-laws, you see her go, I'm going back. I'm going back. You two should go home. You're young enough, you can probably get married again. But I'm going back. And one of these daughter-in-laws, Orpha, 
obeys and returns to her parents. But this other one, Ruth, says no. In the end of Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and ever also, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She dedicates herself, not just to Naomi, but to Israel. Now, this is about as close to a conversion as you will see in the Old Testament. Just like we saw in the faith of Rahab, Ruth is expressing a faith in Yahweh and the way his people and his culture work. She is walking away from her own people, her own culture, her own history and saying, this is what I want. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Now apparently, she had not read Deuteronomy 23 where it said she couldn't do that. Because <laughs> she does. She doesn't, doesn't necessarily know that Moab has no place in Israel. Because she looks and says, I want in on that. I'm not going anywhere. She gives herself fully to care for her mother-in-law. But also to this, this new people, this new way of life, this God different than hers. And as we've seen throughout Scripture and stories like Rahab, faith in God is not wasted. And sees that faith. And there's something about that. It isn't wasted. Chapter 2 picks up with Ruth and Naomi making their way back to their ancestral land. Remember, Naomi owns land in Bethlehem. But it's been sitting untaken care of for years at this point. And so when they get there, even the barley harvest is going on, they have nothing. They're facing the very real possibility of actual starvation. But Israel has laws for that. You can read about it in Leviticus 19 and 23. There's something called gleaning laws, which says that those who harvest their land cannot harvest the rough edges of the field where the plow lines aren't quite even. They need to leave the edges for the poor and for the widows and for the orphans and for the sojourners. And beyond that, as they're harvesting the field, anything they drop, they're supposed to leave on the ground, even if it was an accident, because those are the gleanings set aside for the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, the poor. And so, sitting there, facing starvation, they go, well, we've got to go glean. And so Ruth goes to glean. Now here's the catch to this. Remember, this is the point in history where Israel's MO is rejecting God and not following the law. And going onto someone else's property and just picking a whole bunch of food and taking it home for you is a quick way to get killed or as a young woman with no protection, assaulted or worse. So she wanders off to glean with no guarantee that anyone in Israel is actually following the gleaning laws. But by God's grace, what we see in this story is that not every Israelite has rejected their covenant with God. And she makes her way to the field of a man named Boaz. And we're introduced to Boaz, and immediately we're introduced to the fact that Boaz is a godly, faithful man. In a time of uncertainty, in a time of cultural unfaithfulness, Boaz is a man who's following the law of God, not just the law of God, the inconvenient law of God that costs him money. Boaz is a man whose field's edges are unharvested. 
whose gleanings are left, where women from the community come and glean behind his harvesters because they know they'll be saved. Ruth makes her way to this field and begins to glean. And when Boaz realizes who she is, Ruth the Moabitess, instead of seeing her by her cultural identity, he recognizes her by her character. I've heard about this woman. She's the one who's taking care of Naomi. And he says to his workers, make sure she has enough food. You know what? Drop extra food in front of her so she can pick it up. Let, let her, hey, let her go to our shelters to get out of the sun and make sure she has access to water. Make sure she's taken care of. Doesn't see her as Ruth the outsider, Ruth the enemy of God, Ruth the Moabitess. But as a young woman taking care of a widow. He cares for her. And so when Ruth makes her way back to Naomi, she has no clue how this works. She's like, this, is, this worked really well. I got a lot of barley out of this. <laughs> Israel is way better than I thought it was going to be. Naomi is obviously struck because she got way more grain than she should have from cleaning. Where did you go? And when she tells her, there's this, there's this interesting scene, right, right at the end of chapter 2, where there's this glint of joy, but also I think this kind of like, let's not get our hopes up, where she goes, Boaz is one of our redeemers. Boaz is one of our redeemers. Now here's the thing about this. This is, a, this is an important thing. This is a Hebrew word pronounced gall, double A. I don't know how you do that. G-A-A-L. How do you get that out? Gall. Anyway, this word means redeemer. And this concept is really important to the Hebrew self-identity, cultural identity. And it essentially comes down to this idea. When a kinsman sacrifices of themselves to save a family member. And that works out in very physical and real ways. The, the first time we see that word is in Genesis 14, when Abraham, by the way, the father of Israel, goes out and rescues Lot, by the way, the father of Moab, from his kidnappers at great personal cost and personal risk. But this, this concept is also codified in the law of Israel. We, we talked about this cultural piece a little bit when we talked about Tamar, but remember, the, the, the inheritance is so important. The inheritance has to be passed from generation to generation. And so this idea of the goal, the Redeemer, is codified in Israelite law with this idea of going, family members need to come alongside and make sure the family name does not go away and the inheritance passes to no one. So if there's a situation where you have a widow or a death, someone needs to provide a son to take on and carry on the inheritance and protect the inheritance. There's a couple ways that could happen. If there was no widows involved, if it was tragic and a whole family died, someone could essentially give one of their sons the other family's name and say, my son will go and take this land and he will be this family and he will carry the inheritance. Or if there's a widow in the mix, the widow would be married and the first son born to that widow would not take on the name of the husband but take on the name of the family and carry on the inheritance. So here's the thing about this. You can kind of think about this redeemer law. It's not the same, but it's kind of similar to how we think of like foster homes and foster parenting. And here's the reason. It's this incredibly vital social institution that keeps Israel going, that creates this really important safety net, right? But it's also a really big pain. And so very few people are actually willing to do it. Because here's the thing. To take on the form of a redeemer means taking responsibility for a whole other family's chunk of land. 
It means making sure that land is cared for and tilled and harvested every year. It means making sure a child is raised up and cared for who's able to take on that inheritance. And when they come to adulthood, they don't just have a piece of land, but they have a functioning farm and a little bit of money in the bank and the ability to continue on. And at the end of the day, when you croak, none of your kids get that inheritance. Someone else's kids do. It's a big sacrifice. That brings you some benefit, right? Like you get to eat the food you harvest off that land, right? But at the end of the day, you're taking on a big responsibility that benefits someone else. And very few people are willing to do it. So you see Naomi get this joy of, oh, this is a godly man. He's one of our redeemers. And he may very well do this. But there's also this glint of, but don't get your hopes up. Let's see how this goes. So going into chapter 3, they set the plan. Naomi sends Ruth to go and bluntly tell Boaz their need. Take off your widow's mourning garments, put on your veil, which is a way of saying in that culture, I'm available, marry me. And go and meet with him. But don't do it in public. Wait till the end of the barley harvest. He'll fall asleep, probably a little buzzed. Find him then, when he's not around other people. Because here's the deal. Ruth is a Moabite. No good, godly Jew is going to want to marry her. And so Naomi basically says, don't go asking this in front of people. You need to do this when it can be just the two of you. Because this might not be enough. Right? So Ruth goes in the night after the harvest and finds Boaz sleeping and wakes him up and brings her need to him about as bluntly as she can. She says this, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And you probably know this story, right? Like this is like the famous love story of the Bible. And like we've all if you've been in church, you've heard it a million times, so you know where this is going. But I want to pause us here. I want you to take a second to be in this tension of this moment. This young Moabitess, this young outsider's outsider, who has no part in Israel sitting at the foot of a righteous godly man, saying, I need you to save me. I need your help. I need you to cover me with your wings. I can't do this. I need you. And here's the piece, guys. There's no good reason for Boaz to do this. I know that's harsh to say it that way. But think about what we said. Not only is he taking on a huge responsibility, to carry on someone else's family name, to care for their land, having to pull his own workers, his own resources, to till and prepare and restore a land that's been abandoned for a long time, raise up money, build up a savings account for someone else. Beyond just that, he has to marry a Moabitess and take the stigma that goes with that for the rest of his life. A dude who has kept his nose clean, a dude who is following the covenant to marry someone not included in the covenant. There's no good reason for Boaz to do this. But look at his response. He responds with joy. So he loves Ruth. He is honored to redeem her. To 
says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you ask. My fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy one. He says to her, you are not Ruth the Moabitess. That's not how I see you. I am honored to do this. This is a joy. He sees her through her character. He sees her through the way she's chosen to live her life, the way she's chosen to give herself to others. And he is honored to take on the burden of redeeming her. Guys, that is a beautiful picture of redemption. Redemption costs something. It is a burden. And yet Boaz takes on that burden with joy. We go to chapter 4, and the details get worked out. Boaz finds out there's a, another relative closer to Naomi, and he needs first dibs. So Boaz goes to him and is like, hey, you know, a little like slam needs a redeemer, and you can do that. And the guy's like, oh, sweet, yeah, I'll get a bunch of free food. So, oh, by the way, there's a Moabite widow you have to marry. And the guy's like, mm, nah, I'm good, no thanks. And he steps back. And so Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a child together. And there's this amazing scene where this son is placed in the lap of Naomi. We skip this part, but in the end of chapter 1, when Naomi returns to Israel, she is angry and bitter. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mora, which means bitter in Hebrew, because I left this land full and God brought me back empty. <coughs> she has hurt and bitterness from her experience outside of the covenant. And the story ends with Naomi holding her Having been redeemed. Having been restored. The grandson that, by the way, by law, is her son. Who will carry on her name. Who will carry on the inheritance of Elimelech. Who will carry on the name of the line of King David. That baby, little baby Obed, is the grandfather of King David. Making Ruth the grandmother of King David. Or great-grandmother. And great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. What a cool way for this story to come together. And by the way, the blessing that the people of Bethlehem put upon their marriage, I love this part, is they say, May you be like Perez, born of Tamar. May that blessing be upon you. That scarlet thread, that way God carried that family forward. May that be for your family. And it is. And in God's faithfulness, that work carries on. And Ruth the Moabites, Ruth the outsider, Ruth the one with no hope of inclusion in God's people, is a mother of Jesus, included in the family, drawn into the line, the very line of Christ. I love that. That redemption doesn't just pull her out of her sorrow, pull her out of her hurt. It gives her a place of honor. It's a good thing she didn't read Deuteronomy 23 at the beginning of this time. <laughs> Brought from the far outside as you can be to the place of honor, the seat of honor. This is the story of Ruth. Come on. Church, if you don't if you don't see the redemption of Christ in this story, right? Like you need to check your pulse. <laughs> 
What a beautiful gospel we have. Redemption costs something. Just like Boaz joyfully takes on the burden, Christ takes on the burden for us. Amen? Amen. What a beautiful story in the gospel. So how does this come back to joy? How does this connect us to the Advent theme of joy this week? I said this at the beginning, but let, let me bring this back for us. I genuinely believe that when the, when, when, when the hope of God, when godly biblical hope, this trust that, that, that God can fix things in the future, this desire, this longing for God to make things better, to restore things. When biblical hope is married to biblical faith, the trust that God actually is who He says He is, and that He actually does what He says He'll do, when those things are married together, Joy is born. Joy comes out of that. I think joy, the way biblical, the way the Bible describes it to us, has to do with just this certainty, this abject certainty of our place in reality. There's a in the New Testament, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. The book of Philippians. One of my favorite books in the Bible. I memorized most of it when I was younger, but I didn't practice. So don't quiz me on that. <laughs> I love the book of Philippians. It's a book I come back to in my personal study often. One of the main themes of Philippians is joy. And, and I love that because Philippians was written while Paul was in prison, not sure if he was about to die. So the story is he gets arrested. He's facing the potential of execution. And while he's in prison, this church he helped plant sent him some money and sent him a guy, Epaphroditus, to help him out. And Philippians is the thank you letter Paul writes and sends back with Epaphroditus when he goes back to this church. And there's this famous section in the very end of Philippians in chapter 4 where he's talking about the gift, talking about their provision for him. And he says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, but I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Either the last part. That's the famous one. Paul connects this idea. Where he basically just says, look guys, thank you. I appreciate the money. I love Epaphroditus. It was wonderful. But I just want you to know, I'm good. I'm good. And I'm good because my circumstances don't really matter all that much. I've been in way better ones. I've been in worse ones. But when it gets down to it, I've got Jesus. So I'm good. Earlier in the book, when he's talking about the potential of his imminent death, he says in the end of chapter 1, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm good. I've got Jesus. There's something about the assurance of the accomplished work of Christ on our behalf that gives Paul such a firm foundation in reality that he looks at his present circumstances and goes, what is this light and momentary affliction? I'm good. I'm secure. See, Ruth is this amazing story of redemption. It's this beautiful picture of what it looks like when someone who loves Christ, that that love works itself out in action and sacrificial love and care for another. But here's the amazing thing, church. You have access to a better Boaz. Jesus is your redeemer. And he sees you, the outsider, scarred by sin, marred by what you have done and what has been done to you. 
And here's the beautiful thing. Regardless of how much of a sinner you are, regardless of how much of an outsider your unholiness and His holiness makes you, regardless of how little you bring to the table, Christ delights to redeem you. It says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Christ delights to take on the burden of redeeming you and me. What a better Boaz. And that, beloved, is secure and true. Nothing can change that. Nothing can touch that. And that, guys, that is the secret. That is the peace. And Jim said something at last gathering. Was, you know, joy and peace are similar, but joy is different because it's exuberant. And there's truth to that. <coughs> joy looks like something. It gets a little loud and goofy and your voice breaks. The reason that that comes out of it, it's the natural outpouring of our hope and our faith married together. Because Christ is trustworthy. And his work for you has been accomplished. Because of who he is and because of, because of what he's done, you are secure for eternity. Your place in reality is set by the blood and authority of Jesus. And nothing on this earth can shake that. It does not matter what life brings you. It does not matter what suffering you experience. It does not matter the diagnoses, the mourning, the loss of people, broken relationships, the, the, the heaviest and worst things and the best and most joyful things this world can throw at you. None of them have the ability to shake the firm foundation of your being placed in the family of God by the blood of Jesus. You are firm in Him. Secure in Him. That beloved. That, that truth. Yeah. That's worth a little bit of joy. That's worth a little bit of exuberance. That, that actually, actually can keep you secure in the changing winds of a hard life. I'm confident in a space like this that each of us have brought in a whole stack of different circumstances this morning. Some amazing and some awful. And that's the reason why when the greeter smiles and says good morning, we oftentimes just smile and say, good to be seen, blessed to be blessed. And I'm not poofing on you if you did that this morning. <laughs> I get it. But I want to invite you to this, to consider this. If you are in Christ, you are secure. Christ has made your position in reality sure. And nothing can shake that. Beloved, this is the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can choose to live in that truth here and today. You can choose to let that weigh more than what's in front of you. You can engage that. You can rest in that. Beloved, Ruth was in desperate need of help. She had no recourse. She had no hope. She had no place. She saw a picture of what Yahweh was like. And she was redeemed. God moved through Boaz, and she was redeemed. Beloved, that is what has been done for you. Christ moved on your behalf, and you have been redeemed. Christian, you want to come up here?
I'm going to ask you guys just to do this. He's going to sing a song. And I want to ask you just to take a few minutes to be with Jesus in prayer. I know we do stuff like this every week, but I, want, I, want, I really want you to talk to Jesus about this. <coughs> I know a lot of us are in this space going, man, I would, I would love to actually have some real joy in this season. I want to encourage you to talk to Christ about that today. Take a few minutes and sit around with him. Ask him about the security you have in him. Ask him about your place in reality. Ask him about the way he sees you. The way he defines you and thinks of your relationship. See what he says. Sit in that with him for a few moments. See what he says. And then Jim will come up and lead us in communion. Love to do the work you need to do with Christ.